Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a really special episode for you. We've invited Dr. J.P. Warner as a guest. Dr. Warner is well known to most members of our society. But for those of you who do not know him, he's co-chief of the Boston Shoulder Institute and the Shoulder Service at Mass General Hospital. He's received numerous accolades within our field, the NEAR Award, the Kappa Delta Award. He served as a prior president of the SES. He has over 250 publications, um, and I'm hopeful that he can share with us part of his journey through shoulder surgery. Dr. Warner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first become interested in shoulder surgery? So um, it's kind of an, an interesting story, but basically my epiphany came in the recovery room after my own shoulder surgery. And um, let me take, let me go back to that date. I was uh, probably a, a mid-level orthopedic resident at Harvard, and I was at the Mass Journal at the time, and I developed shoulder a shoulder problem that in uh, retrospect, uh, um, wasn't really understood well and had just undergone an arthroscopy um, by someone who at the time was supposed to be a shoulder expert. And I was in the recovery room and that individual came and talked with me a little bit about what was done. And my best friend who was a fellow resident uh, who had scrubbed on the case came along after and I asked him, did that guy know what he was doing? And he said, no. <laughs> and you have to understand that in the, um, uh, mid-1980s when uh, I was having shoulder surgery, there was a lot of eminence, but not a lot of evidence. And uh, so people were just learning how to use the arthroscope and such. And uh, I realized at that moment, given the answer of my friend, that there was a real opportunity here. And that's when I had my epiphany that I actually wanted to become a so-called shoulder surgeon. It wasn't like there, there were those kinds of folks at the time. Mostly it was people who did sports medicine who were a um, adapting the arthroscope to looking inside of the shoulder. So where did you go from there? How did you then develop some expertise in that area? Um, well, again, it, you know, everybody has a journey uh, from different angles. Mine was somewhat personal. So that wasn't my last shoulder surgery. I had several more and along the way developed a particular interest in trying to define the um, science behind what we were doing in the shoulder. And um, so I I went out and, of course, looked for a fellowship at the time. And again, remember, in the, in the mid-80s, it wasn't like everybody was doing fellowships. And in those days, there were really only two formal so-called shoulder fellowships. There was Dr. Charles Neer and Dr. Charles Rockwood. And, um, and then some folks that were coming along, people like Russ Warren, who I think had three or four publications in the shoulder at that time. Uh, and it, as it turned out, I, I wound up uh, scheduling some time with uh, Russ Warren as a uh, as one of his first shoulder fellows. And um, I also went to Europe and created my own program in Europe with people like Christian Gerber. And these experiences allowed me to learn firsthand about not just the clinical practice of shoulder surgery, but a lot of the biomechanics that was relevant to what we did. And that was the beginning of my career with a principal focus on understanding the biomechanics of shoulder instability and then stability. And, and um, 
that kind of started me down the road uh, from an academic point of view. So from there, you went to, to Pittsburgh. Tell us what you do that job. Um, well, it was, <laughs> Pittsburgh was really uh, a, an amazing experience. I mean, I'd never been to Pittsburgh before. And while I was a fellow at the Hospital for Special Surgery, this guy named Freddie Fu uh, came into town and actually came up to see me in my, my fellow's office. And, uh, you know, Freddie wasn't yet the larger-than-life person that he was to become. And um, he sort of came and said, you know, I need a, somebody who's, who has shoulders to come to Pittsburgh. And, uh, and I went and uh, interviewed with Jim Herndon, who ultimately became my chairman, and was lucky enough to go to an incredibly dynamic place with a, with a wonderful leader, chief, that is Jim Herndon, and then a great partner in Freddie Fu, two, two really important ingredients to a good career. Um, and that really uh, was the beginning of my own career, uh, principally because I had a great biomechanics lab and got to do really important research. That was the Kappa Delta Award you mentioned. And, uh, and then grow my own clinical experience in, in an environment that really needed somebody doing that sort of thing. In those days, it was sort of a vacuum and, um, and really an exciting time for growth in the so-called specialty of shoulder surgery. Now, while at Pittsburgh, you, you produced some, what have been some really influential biomechanics papers, kind of at the genesis of what's been an explosion since then. In fact, your most frequently cited study is actually a study using Moray topography. Tell us, tell us how you came to do this study. So first of all, um, that work wasn't done in Pittsburgh. Uh, that particular study was done in one of my other fellowships. I did a number of fellowships, but uh, I was actually a um, sports medicine fellow at Children's Hospital working for uh, a guy who was alleged in the Boston area, Lyle McKaylee. And um, I was very interested in those days in understanding the, the way the shoulder works. And um, so we didn't have a lot of the tools that we have now. And my particular interest had to do with scapular mechanics and how the scapula and the glenohumeral joint work with one another. And Moray topography was a technique that was used to map deformities uh, in scoliosis. And the moray pattern would be projected onto the back, and you could see asymmetries in the um, contour of the back that would reflect scoliosis curves. And I thought, well, why couldn't we use this technology when someone is raising and lowering their arms to look at the pattern um, of motion of the scapula to see if there are asymmetries that we might quantitate more than just with our eye? And um, that, that study actually demonstrated that virtually every single person who had so-called impingement or even instability had abnormal scapular mechanics. Now, in those days, there wasn't much discussion that we knew um, uh, about uh, the relationship of scapular motion to gonohumeral motion in terms of the two-to-one relationship of the gonohumeral to scapothoracic motion. And... Um, a lot of therapists had good insight into this, but, but surgeons didn't really do exams that way. And it was actually Robert Leffert, who was one of the uh, presidents of the American Shoulder Elbow Surgeons, um, uh, who was the expert in upper extremity. And he coined the term um, scapulothoracic dyskinesis, which is abnormal scapular motion. Um, 
And so I was interested, and that's why I did this study, and this was one of the first studies to show that abnormal scapular mechanics were quite common in clinical conditions of the shoulder. Now, I want to just jump forward and highlight um, one of my students, uh, who is now my partner and ultimately will be my successor, and that's Bassem el And Bassem is redefining how we understand the scapula as the platform for the shoulder. And he's now coined the term STAM, or scapular thoracic abnormal motion, which is a broad um, understanding or a broad framework to, for which to understand how this scapula has uh, pathomechanics in certain conditions. So, you know, if, if we go all the way from the 1980s when I tried to study this with more topography to now where we are now in our understanding of the scapula, this is sort of how it started. And I'm pleased to say that I was uh, one of the people along the way that helped start that um, consideration for how the shoulder joint as, as a group of, of joints, if you will, work together or sometimes don't work so well together. I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because it's continued to be such a point of contention in the diagnosis and treatment of shoulder conditions is what is the role of dyskinesis? Is it compensatory? Is it causative? Um, and certainly, I think it probably can be both. And this study really helped to first highlight that. I think it was such an important first step. It's such a foundational step, you know? Uh, I, yeah, I want to point out to everybody that don't be daunted by the work you do that doesn't get published because that that study got rejected in a lot of places. I think ultimately it was published in clinical orthopedics and related research. Um, but what I've learned over the years of being an academician is some of the best work I've ever done was the hardest work to get published anywhere. And it's because when you do something that isn't necessarily derivative and consistent with what's already out there, there's a lot of resistance, I think, by the... Uh, if you will, peer review community to actually get it into publication. That's a pretty good launching off point for the next question. The next study I wanted to ask you about during your time at Pittsburgh. So your third most frequently cited is your study on the role of the biceps in preventing proximal humor migration. And this, this study is frequently cited as the reason why you can't do a tenodesis, you need the biceps or the or then the patient will have proximal migration. I know this, this study was published a long time ago, but the fundings have been controversial for many years. So I want you to tell us about the study and then if you can, how it illustrates how our research could change our thinking about practice and how that evolves over time. Well, I, I think we should go back to some of the, what we thought at the time about this. And, and really for that, it's not me. We should go back to work that Ken Yamaguchi did relative to, and I think in collaboration with uh, Bob Neviser and, um, you know, there was a presumption in those days that the biceps was an important humeral head depressor, that it was a secondary dynamic stabilizer of the shoulder. And while studies have been done that demonstrate that uh, um, force through the biceps increases rigidity of the shoulder and stabilizes the shoulder against instability, I think it was a work Radosky did, it, that was done at University of Pittsburgh before I got there. Um, that's in throwing motion, okay? But in just raising your arm over your head and, uh, um, you know, initiating abduction and those kinds of motions, uh, there was the, the belief that the biceps was a secondary humeral head depressor with the rotator cuff being the primary one. And so, of course, the thinking was you shouldn't 
you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get rid of the biceps, you should preserve it. And uh, I think it was Yamaguchi who demonstrated that the biceps really had no increased electrical activity in situations where you had a big rotator cuff tear and the biceps was preserved. So um, the evolution of thinking about the biceps was that it really, really wasn't that important. And it was the Europeans subsequently, uh, Walsh and others, that um, identified that biceps tenotomy was actually a very good way to treat pain in massive irreparable rotator cuff tears, oddly enough. So my paper that I think you're quoting actually was um, on the side of trying to preserve the biceps and it was incorrect, to be fair. So (laughs) it's interesting that that should be quoted frequently because it was actually uh, not the uh, correct thinking. Why do you think it's incorrect? I mean, I read the study and I think that it looks like it was well done. I think this is an interesting example because, I mean, I, I'm sure you did this study with all the best intentions. You did this study well. Why did it help us? Well, I think when we ask questions and people try to um, determine whether or not what your conclusions are are correct, we ultimately get to the right answer. And that's the way actually science should work. That's why we uh, have meetings, why we debate ideas, why uh, concepts change and why we move forward. Um, so, so that might have been part of it that it stimulated the thinking. Um, and I remember conversations I had with Jill Walsh about this way back when. I mean, we we spent a lot of time in those days at these meetings arguing about the role of the biceps. What should you know? What should we do with the biceps? Is it important to save it or not? Um, I, I vividly remember when I gave a grand round at Columbia. I think Lou Biliani was the chairman at the time. And I then went to watch some surgery and Ken Yamaguchi was the fellow and he's working with Evan Flato. And uh, during the procedure, inadvertently the biceps tendon was cut. And it was sort of a, a, a funny discussion as to whether or not they would pre- repair it in order to preserve its function across the shoulder. Whereas now many people, me included, automatically sacrifice the biceps tendon when doing an arthroplasty. Yeah, me, me too. Me too. And it's interesting to hear that was a topic of discussion because we're not talking about that, which is probably anymore, which is probably a good sign that we're moved on and we're progressing as a field. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's one other aspect of that pit that I wanted to ask you of. And I, um, you may not be aware of this, but I, you know, I, I asked Jay Keener the same question about how he first became interested in shoulder surgery. And one aspect of his journey is when he was working as a physical therapist, this is before he even went to medical school, he came to visit you. And he, he spent a day in your operating room when you were at Pitt, and he was actually really inspired by your practice. And that's, you know, he lists that as one of his early exposures to shoulder surgery. Do you remember this? Is there a counterpart to his story from your side? <laughs> no, actually, Jay reminded me of that. And I, I got to tell you that 32 years now into my career, it's very hard for me to remember the day when somebody visited me <laughs> so, years ago. Um, and, and, you know, remember, in those days, we were pre-digital, you know, so it's not like you can look at my iPhone and see, oh, I took a picture of who was with me. Um, (laughs) You know, our memories can be much more vivid when we have an iPhone to like scroll through the pictures that somebody visited. So I didn't specifically remember that, but um, it it is interesting in retrospect, how many of these kinds of so-called casual visits turn into something that had meaning uh, to either one or both of the parties who, who visited. And, and that's the beauty of growing up in this world, uh, uh, you know, of early shoulder surgery. It wasn't really that early, but it was 
in the nascent period where shoulder was becoming the, the specialty that it is now. And these sorts of connections and questions that were raised made it such a rich experience and so interesting because there were just so many questions that needed to be answered and people who were eager to work on them. So you're you're in Pittsburgh for many years and then left for Boston. Tell tell us what initially drew you to Boston. Well, first of all, if you, if you do the math on, I was in Pittsburgh for eight years, and you know, thirty two years minus eight is how long I've been in Boston. And <laughs> I went to Pittsburgh because I had the opportunity to do something that is essential to a great career. I had a great boss, I had great partners. And I had an environment that was incredibly supportive and open to me to develop my career academically and clinically. And that's just not the way it always is. Um, and so those eight years there were, were fantastic for um, helping me get started down the road of being an academician and developing my clinical skills. I might add it also helped me create the network that ultimately um, led to a very rich career that that includes my uh friendship and relationship with not just people like Gilles Walsh and Christian Gerber and others um but but also an incredible parade of talented fellows students who in some cases became my partners like um Larry Higgins um Brian Cole who was a, a student of mine etc um and uh and so you know that that was where Pittsburgh fit. Now, to be fair, um, the decision to go back to Boston uh, was two or two things. One, my wife was from Boston, so of course she wanted to go home. And two, Jim Herndon had been um, selected as the chairman of the first uh, combined um, uh, orthopedic program chair, you know, as the first combined orthopedic program chair at Harvard. And he asked me to go along with him. And the conversation with my wife is a little like this. You got two choices, a long commute or a short commute, because I'm going to Boston and you can come as well if you want. So um, it, it worked well personally and it worked well professionally. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I how I migrated to Boston. Um. And then you see, so you mentioned your shoulder fellowship philosophy, which I know you've lived for a long time now. I, I remember very clearly when I interviewed with you. One, one aspect of your fellowship that's always set it apart has been the international experience. You mentioned earlier that you had traveled earlier in your career to Europe. Tell us about that. How did you come up with the idea? How did you build those relationships initially? So um, I, I just want to reference something before I go further. Uh, as you may know, I started the Codman Shoulder Society to honor Codman, but also to create a network of individuals that are like-minded and wanting to look at ways to create value in the care of shoulder problems. It's, it's actually a lot more than that. And uh, if you go to the website, you'll see that. But, but um, what I learned early on was that these friendships, these professional relationships um, resulted in uh, wonderful opportunities for growth and collaboration. And again, if we go back to the days when I was doing fellowship, my fellowship, you know, there was no internet. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't like you could go look what people were doing easily there. You went to the, uh, to the library and you got journal articles and you read them. And it occurred to me that when I became passionate about shoulder, I needed to create my own 
program because there were limited opportunities. And so I wrote to Christian Gerber. And at the time, he was what they call an Oberarzt in, uh, in Selspital or at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And I asked if I could come and visit. And I did so kind of through an AO uh, fellowship. And um, I kind of pieced together my European experience. And this was um, 1988, actually, the year before I went to HSS. And it was one of the most fantastic experiences of my life, not just culturally living in Europe in those days, but um, watching somebody who was literally thinking outside the box before it was fashionable to say, I'm thinking outside the box. And I, I remember the things that I learned in those days that we take for granted now were, for example, uh, the identification of um, subscapularis ruptures and, you know, liftoff signs and belly press signs and these kinds of things. This was, remember, 1988. And I was with Russ Warren, I think, the first time he actually saw a patient who had a subscapularis tear because he put the scope in and saw there wasn't a subscapularis there. In the pre-op area, I already examined the patient and knew what we were going to see because of my experience with Gerber. So that was kind of interesting and exciting that he was learning what I already knew because I was somewhere else a year before where I learned how to do the exam. Um, so that experience was so impactful on me. I felt if I'm going to be a mentor to people, I should create something like that for my, my uh, fellows. And um, it wasn't in Pittsburgh that this started. In Pittsburgh, it was Freddie Fu, Chris Harner, and myself together in a sports medicine shoulder rotation for the fellows. But when I came to Boston, I was able, through my relationships with people like Gerber and Walsh and LaFosse and Boileau and others, to create this international experience for our fellows where we would fund them to go to Europe for several months and then they could choose who they wanted to work with and uh, have that experience and then come back and finish in Boston with myself and um, early on it with Peter Millett and subsequently Larry Higgins in those days. So I just want to make sure I understand this. So you went to, you were, you're, you're a resident at, um, you're a resident at Harvard and you go to the library and you read some articles about the shoulder and you see that there's, Christian Gerber and Byrne, and you say, God, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. And then you, you write him a letter, like you, in the mail. You wrote him a letter. Exactly. That's what we did in, in those in days. A, in English <laughs> or in German or in... No, I wrote it in English. And he actually, one of the things about Christian Gerber that was fascinating is that he speaks five languages. It's at least five languages. In fact, remember in those days, we didn't have PowerPoint digital. We actually had slides, you know, these things that, that put, you put in a carousel. And then, right. you know, you'd go, okay, so every talk that he had in those days, he had in five different languages. He could give the same talk in Italian, French, English, German, you know, and Spanish, to be fair. So um, I wrote him a letter and he answered me in English and effectively said, sure, you can come. And uh, then I sort of pieced that together. My funding was nominal. It was mostly credit card, my own credit card, and uh, a very small grant from AO, and then something called the Cave Traveling Fellowship, which was a small endowed fellowship from the Mass General Hospital that helped me get over there. But, but that's how we did things in those days. It wasn't like it is now where you email somebody. And you didn't have any connection to him. It was kind of a cold call letter out of the blue. Nope. You didn't know someone no, who knew was, him. No, it was an adventure. You know, I literally cold, cold called him in, an email, in, a, in a letter 
and uh, he answered me, and I, I showed up. In fact, it's fascinating. Reinhold Gans was the chairman uh, at the University of Bern in those days, and a guy named Roly Jakob was um, sort of a sports guy. And when I showed up, I met Roly Jakob first, who I'd also written to, and Roly introduced Christian Gerber as their chief resident. In those days, that would have been, Christian was about 38, 39 in those days when I first met him. And this is back in the days when there's just, there, you know, like in that university system, there's just one professor and then the chief resident is the resident until yeah. someone else retires, basically. Uh, yeah, it was a very, it was a very hierarchical system. That's exactly right, how right. it was. Yes. Um, and then I, this is a part that I've never understood. So you have... You know, you have your own fellows. You've done this with for a long time, and they they have this similar journey through Europe. How do you fund this? Who, how is it? I mean, it sounds like for yourself, you went into credit card debt to do it. Are you are you continuing to go into credit yeah. card debt to fund your own fellows? No, 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 no. So, so you know what what many folks don't understand is that everything is contextual in terms of regulatory and uh, fundraising and such. So in those days, industry was very open to giving, uh, um, you know. Educational and uh, educational grants to mm. to uh, certain individuals, certain programs. Now, some of you may some some of the listeners here may have heard of Avamed, which had to do with how uh, professional um, education is is conducted and how doctors do or you know have relationships with industry. And then, of course, we've been through the DOJ issue with industry, and and this changed the face of how how education happened in relationships with industry. But in the pre-Avamed days, you could actually ask companies for uh, educational grants and they would give one a grant. And so uh, years ago when I first started at Harvard, I part of my contract was that I would have X amount of dollars for a fellowship program that I wanted to start there, after which I had to figure out how to raise the money. And nobody really told me how to raise the money. I mean, you can ask patients for money, but they usually don't have such deep pockets, but industry did. And so without naming all the companies, there were many companies that were relatively generous that gave funds to a corpus that we established, a Sundries Fund for Education. And at one point that was several million dollars. And I had a relatively rich educational bank account, if you will, from which I literally funded the fellows to travel to Europe and to find a place to live and et cetera, so that they could work with these guys, um, be it Christian Gerber or Gilles Valsch or Laurent Lafosse or Pascal, Pascal Borlo were the main ones at the time. That Now, since then, that's become very difficult. And uh, I think most of my colleagues who have fellowships now, and we have many, many different shoulder fellowships now, um, have their own particular way they fund, but getting dollars directly from companies really doesn't happen much anymore. I think that's such an interesting insight into the changes that we've seen in our relationship with industry that this is maybe a unintended consequence of what happened with the DOJ. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I, I do think there was some uh, implied quid pro quo um, that, you know, the companies whose products you would use would support you, your fellowship. And I can understand the uncomfortableness of that. It, it, in the day when we were doing it, I mean, it wasn't like I was using the money for personal interest. I was using the money to support fellowship education, which otherwise I wouldn't have been able 
to do. And I think my fellows who might be listening to this, my former fellows, will remember what an incredible opportunity that was. And fortunately, the times allowed me to have the funding to support people. Now, I, I also want to make a, a comment here. When I went to Switzerland to work with Christian Gerber, um, I had the idea to do research. And that research was a study which you didn't mention, which was uh, an anatomical study of the suprascapular nerve. That was published in, in uh, JBJS in, I don't know, the early 90s. And what I wanted to do is understand the proximity of the suprascapular nerve to um, rotator cuff repair and see the implications of mobilization of the rotator cuff and potential injury to the suprascapular nerve. And there was a procedure described by a French surgeon named Debert, which was a supraspinatus slide, where when you didn't have enough of tendon left, you would literally do a transacromial approach and mobilize the entire muscle and shift it laterally on the neurovascular pedicle so you could close the rotator cuff. Remember, we're not in the arthroscopic era, we're in the open era. And in order to do that study, it was determined the best place for me to possibly do that was in Paris at the School of Surgery. And I had to be sponsored by a French surgeon, and that surgeon was named Alain Muscalet, who was a, uh, a brilliant uh, upper extremity surgeon. And actually, it was Reinhold Gans who funded me out of his own whatever resources he had to go live in Paris for five weeks and do this study. And it was Roly Jacob who found me an apartment there, or I think they might have owned an apartment there. And so I was fully supported because I had a good idea. And that stuck with me. And it also um, was one of the reasons why I felt motivated to give back, pay it forward, if you will, for my future fellows to give them similar opportunities to go overseas and do this kind of research and have experience with people like I just, that I just mentioned. There's there's so much to unpack from from that story. For the listeners who don't know, Reinhold Gans invented the periastabular osteotomy, which has obviously become incredibly influential in understanding of femoral tabular impingement, which has now become one of the more popular hip diagnoses and understood as a cause of hip osteoarthritis. There's but another again, thing again, I want to say. One, I, I, I want to say one more thing about that before you go past yeah. Gans. You know, um, this coming academy will be the first award of the Dominic, the Dominic Meyer Award, which Christian Gerber um, created. Dominic Meyer was Christian Gerber's junior partner, who is a brilliant um, uh, thinker and innovator. And this particular award was given by a jury um, of uh, judges, of which I was one, Joe Iannotti was one from the US, but judges from around the world, to the individual who had um, created the most innovative um, solution to problems. And it was Reinhold Gans this year that will be awarded at, in Chicago. And you, you mentioned periacetabular osteotomy. That's, that's true, he did that. But he, in the absence of any grant funding towards the end of his career, crystallized the uh, ideas that led to hip preservation surgery with uh, femoracetabular impingement that now all these folks are doing arthroscopies for. So again, I had the opportunity as a shoulder surgeon to not work just with a brilliant shoulder surgeon, Christian Gerber, at the beginning of his illustrious career, but to also be supported and understand someone like Reinhold Gans in a totally different area. And the thing that differentiates these people is their ability to have courage to be creative. And again, to color outside the lines of the box 
to create something that wasn't there before. Again, this struck, you know, struck me so uh, significantly early in my career that my desire was to try to provide opportunities for my own students to spend time with people like these guys who would help them understand the power of innovation. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's awesome. And I couldn't, I mean, it, I, when I went to visit Pascal, it was the same thing. I mean, it was an incredible lateral shift in my thinking, which I think is maybe another way of saying what you're saying. I wanted to ask you about the French study you mentioned, the sub supersmanatus slide. I've read this study. It's a fascinating study because the healing rates actually are quite high in the study. Have you done this procedure? Why do we never do this anymore? <laughs> well, um, you know, it's a, it's really interesting. In those days, a lot of what was innovative was in the native language of the country where it was done. So the original publications uh, on many novel things done in the shoulder were either in French or in German. And uh, the reason we didn't we didn't do these things is because most of us over here in the pre-internet um, era didn't read that stuff. So I had to go over there to have someone interpret this stuff for me and explain it to me. Um, and a lot of this was the basis by which Gerber came up with his ideas about tenon transfers, latissimus transfer, if you will. Um, uh, it, it came out of German literature or French literature, both of which he could read very well. Now, the reason we didn't do this is because we were very influenced in the United States by uh, our own innovators, Char Charlie Neer being one, and then people who had trained with him. Rich Hawkins was one of his first fellows, Russ Warren and uh, Charlie Rockwood spent time with him. And they had their own ideas about how to do things. And that didn't include, they were more, they were more uh, you know, fundamentals that Near um, uh, developed in terms of concepts of impingement and concepts of rotator cuff there, and then how to actually do a repair, or in the case of Charlie Rockwood, um, favoring doing the Breedmont. So um, we, we, we weren't, I think, so adventurous to do transacromial approaches and then lift entire muscles and move them on their pedicle. Um, that, you know, those kinds of ideas um, are, are now much more um, commonplace because of the internet and people understanding this. And also because of people like Bassam el who is redefining how we can, if you will, um, reanimate dysfunctional shoulders by all sorts of tendon transfers, moving muscles on their pedicles. So I'm hearing that you haven't done the procedure. I really want to meet someone who has because it sounds interesting. I, I, I think I think you'll have a hard time meeting someone who has because it's it's effectively historical. Okay. Right, right. One aspect of practice, just to move to a slightly different topic, we could talk about this all night, I bet. But there's one aspect of practice that I've always admired, um, and I think is really unique, which is that on your website you publish your outcomes. There's a yearly report. You detail all your complications, all your reoperations. It's a it's a it's an, it's an incredible outline of what you did the previous year and how well it worked. I this is I think as far as I can tell almost entirely unique. I can't find any other shoulder surgeon that does this. Tell us what led you to do this. Tell us um, the impetus behind it. So that you're kind of getting to a really important sweet spot for me. And um, so uh, the answer to your question is twofold. One, it's. Uh, feeling that I have a responsibility where I am at the Mass General to someone who came before me, and that's E. Emery Codman. And, uh, you know, Codman 
was, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, the father of modern shoulder surgery. And even though Near came after and was very important, Codman authored the first book in English on uh, shoulder surgery entitled The Shoulder. And um, Codman did many other things too. And one of the most important things he did was to create the end result concept, which was the um, uh, idea that every patient should be measured in terms of their outcome in order to determine if the surgery they had improved them and if it didn't why and how one might innovate to create a, a surgery that would fix the problem um, this was more than 100 years ago now there's it's one of the reasons why i started the codman shoulder society but there's there's um a lot of negative press about codman too and codman actually was somewhat of a polarizing figure and actually lost his job at the Mass General Hospital. And, you know, his views were such that on his gravestone, uh, he wrote, uh, the inscription reads, perhaps in a hundred years, my ideas will be accepted. So I, I sort of felt that I should be measuring uh, like Codman did. Now, that also goes together with the business value of doing that because um, most people who know who I am now and what I do understand that I'm particularly interested in innovation, entrepreneurism, and business. And so it occurred to me that if we measure, we not only get better when we measure, but we can use it as a differentiator for us as a service provider. Uh, because the two things that patients really want are confidence and reassurance. And if they can look and see how many of these you do and how people do and low complication rates, et cetera, you've now differentiated yourself and created a service that might be unique. In fact, you, you just said there aren't a lot of people publishing that. And uh, so it, it was sort of perfect to be doing that. And in fact, uh, what moved me into doing that was after I went for the first time to one of the executive programs at Harvard Business School uh, and uh, learned from Michael Porter about value-based care. And I realized, wow, we can, we can create this um, business model where the differentiation is measurement and transparency. Um, I want to quote one of my mentors at Harvard Business School, which is who's Bob Kaplan. And he said, as did several before him, uh, that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And if you can't manage it, you can't improve it. And I think that says it all. That's why I continue to measure. And every year we publish uh, all of the surgeries we do, um, the uh, complications, the the complications that get better and those that don't. And then we can do cohort analyses of large groups of patients and identify actually, you know, what is our, what is the risk factor for the patient? So when you talk to someone about the surgery they're gonna have, you can really present them a risk analysis and they can see what's the likelihood they get better with a given procedure versus the risk of trying to get there. Again, that's not the kind of conversation most folks have and it's incredibly important conversation, and it also is really good for business from the standpoint of how your customer, in this case the patient, feels about what you offer them. Now, you mentioned in there something that I've also admired about you, which is that you've challenged us to think about that as only one piece of the equation, and you mentioned value that we have to also understand the cost. Did this first enter your thinking with these business school classes you took? How did this, how did this enter your thinking? How does it change your practice? Well, again, back to Codman. More than 100 years ago, Codman analyzed the cost of rotator cuff surgery 
and identified that if an operation failed, the overall cost was about three times higher than if it succeeded. It's crazy. It's more than 100 years ago he did that. You think we would have learned something and applied that sooner. Now, uh, this just in, I think everybody understands that healthcare is incredibly expensive and reaching a breaking point in terms of the percentage of the GDP um, that goes to uh, to um, healthcare and a big chunk of this it happens to be musculoskeletal care. So, of course, I was interested in that. And um, uh, when I ultimately went to Harvard Business School for the executive program, where I could learn about finance and accounting and all those things, it became apparent that measuring outcomes wasn't enough. One also had to measure cost. Now, it's, it, it's very difficult to do that um, for anybody who's tried because the accounting methodology of our hospitals isn't always so easy to sort out. But if you do it, you realize um, how you create value. And um, again, that, that, uh, that creates the opportunity for alignment not just between the doctor and the hospital, but the insurance company, the patient, et cetera. And um, I, I think ultimately, as we undoubtedly move away from a fee-for-service model, which is more and more coming, so-called value-based models require understanding both the cost and the outcome. I think that that idea has become much more influential in our research. And I think surgeons increasingly accept that it's going to be necessary in the future. We've covered a huge range of things that you've learned, things that you've done. Many of the listeners to our podcast are trainees, surgeons early in their career. You know, through your journey, I'm sure you've had things that have worked, things that haven't worked. What what advice would you have for those that are at the beginning of their own journeys? Um, I I want to I'll I'll make a comment to this, but I want to um, uh, give people a resource. Um, most of the listeners here know what ViewMedi is. Um, ViewMedi is uh, the largest uh, source of uh, videos and education that you can find on the internet for physicians and people who are interested in healthcare. And so I've I not only had a lot to do with creating and helping ViewMedi uh, move forward, but I use it as a vehicle to post videos and such. And you can access some of these through the Cotton and Shoulder Society as well. One of the recent videos I made was on career development. Um, and the title of that video was after um, the title of a great book um, written by a guy named Clayton Christensen, who was a um, brilliant professor at Harvard Business School, entitled How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's all about career development and purposefulness. Um, it's not the money we make in our careers. Um, it, it's about the purposefulness of our careers and the impact we have on others. And if you have that as your focus, then you'll understand that the way you have a great career is you find great partners, you find a great boss, you find opportunities to support your, your, your desire to be purposeful in what you do for others. And a big part of that for me is innovating and understanding new ways to improve the quality of care we offer and create value. Um, that's, that's a lot to unpack there. But um, the presentation I did on ViewMedi, for anybody who wants to go find it, it considers all of those things in the context of a personal journey that we've just been talking about, which took me all the way to Europe in the pre-internet era, and then to uh, several locations with a variety of partners and, and people that um, helped me along the way 
to do exactly that. That's what I would advise people to try to replicate if, if they can. Anything else you'd want to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, those who may be listening to this, who fashion themselves to be shoulder surgeons, or for that matter, those who might listen to this, who might be in industry, um, but interested in shoulder product development, this sort of thing, it's an incredible uh, uh, area that we work in. It's a fascinating group of people, and the next generation is even um, more fascinating than the generation before because they have incredible tools uh, and technology that will accelerate uh, the, the uh, innovations and the quality of care we can deliver our patients even more rapidly than the people that I learned from. And so um, I, I, you know, I, I wished everybody luck. And uh, I hope that in some way this story inspires them a little bit to kind of take some risk and develop their own careers and, and be innovative. There's one last question that we've asked many of the um, many of the surgeons that have come on our podcast, which is this one: If you uh, if you could have dinner with any person from history, who would it be, and where are you going to have dinner? Oh my gosh. Um... You know, there are so many different people out there, but one of my heroes, and, and I'll explain why in a moment, not for the reasons you might imagine, is, is Albert Einstein. And um, it's not because he was a genius and e equals MC squared and all of that. It's because he was an incredibly uh, uh, funny man. He had incredible uh, um, quotes uh, about his philosophy of life that really kind of sum things up and sort of the the flip side of Churchill, if you will. Einstein was, you know, not a Churchill, but but just incredibly insightful and brilliant. And uh, so it would be Einstein. And gosh, you know, where to have dinner with him. I mean, anywhere he wanted to have dinner would be fine with me because um, whatever <laughs> made him more comfortable to talk, that would be great because it was it would be the company, not the meal that would be the most important thing. Fair enough. That's a good one. Well, that's about all the time we have for this podcast. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Warner, for coming on with us. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time. All right, great. Thanks for having me.